This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. Published or Not has been around for years, but now Jan Goldsmith is joined by... David McLean. We will chat about words and writing, authors and audiences, publishers and printing, a voice for them all on 3CR. Published or Not, every Thursday, 11.30 till noon. When you get home, baby, write me a few yard lines. David, it is interesting times. People keep saying that for some reason, but we are managing to move forward and maintain our sort of profile in interviewing authors. I know. Well, I I chatted with Asheg Brom from afar about his book Chicken's Same Duck Talk, but you were also talking with somebody. Well, I talked with two people. I had an interesting experience managing to talk to two people almost simultaneously, but in the one call, Angela Segalia and Gay Lynch. So that's all about suspense. Well, how about we hear about it now? Here we go. Perhaps now is not the best time to talk about those stories that keep us in suspense. Then again, suspenseful stories can give us an insight into how we think and function at such times. So this collection entitled Thrill Me from Glimmer Press might just be the antidote we need as we entertain ourselves in isolation. I have two contributors to this collection with me today, Angela Sungalia and Gay Lynch. So Angela and Gay, welcome to 3CR. Thank you very much. Thank you, David. Now, first, Angela. If I could start with you, your narrator, Kat, Catherine McGill, has Alzheimer's. A woman puts her arm around my shoulders. Kat, what you doing out here in the wind? It's going to bucket in a mini, she says. I smile at her. I know her now. You must be Rosie's mum. Oh, love, I am Rosie. It's the storm, isn't it? I'm interested in the potential of Alzheimer's as a narrative device. You've got an unreliable narrator there. Well, that's true, but I was interested in doing the story in a way from her point of view uh, and to try and create the confusion and the disorientation that she must have felt without necessarily having that experience myself, thankfully, and also the fact that she is a vulnerable person and so much of our society uh, is about vulnerability and um, there's a little bit of elder abuse there. So it was trying to bring together all those elements and to portray her as a vulnerable individual who can't quite think clearly and yet is the subject of other people's influence on her. You also got the notion then of even reality being unreliable. That's exactly right. And that's uh, when I portrayed her contact with the police, uh, that the police were not likely to believe what she said, 
the doctor involved wasn't likely to believe what she said so that they believed her reality was delusional, demented, of course. Well, this leads us to then uh, the title of the story, which is called Blood, and blood has been spilled. But as you say, everybody misreads the trail of blood. Yes, that's right, and that's uh, because of her dementia. She is not characterised as a reliable person and so the blood doesn't take on the same meaning as it would if the person was reliable. Just to fill in the reader and listener a bit more, and we're not going to give the story away, that would be terrible. The listener will have to read it for themselves. We have Colin, her son, who takes her to the doctor. As you say, the police, the doctor misread. But even cat misreads the signs of blood at one stage she's putting washing into the washing machine because there's a rusty color on the clothing yes that's right she doesn't always interpret it as being something sinister but the part of her brain that is uh, still functional does hold some alarm about that but it doesn't necessarily surface at the time so she doesn't take any note of it, but it does have an impact on a deeper layer that is still preserved in her mind. Yes, there's that sense of menace, but she can't quite put her finger on what that menace is. That's right. It's uh, something off kilter. But there's also that, that lovely moment she sees blood on Colin and says, oh, you've hurt yourself, love. Yes. It's all innocence and, and a perfectly natural reaction. Yes, and deep down she doesn't want to believe that there is anything sinister. He's her son and at the same time she confuses him with her uh, deceased husband. So she doesn't want either of them to have any connection to anything sinister at all. And in the background you've got that image of lambs uh, because her husband used to look after the lambs and, you know, blood and slaughter where the lambs are concerned as well. I'm going to move on to... Gay now, because talking about Sinister, your story, Gay, is entitled Dog Watch, the last lone watch from the shore before darkness descends. And there are telltale signs of danger in this story, as well as as Piper and her pug, Mami, journey to a festival on the coast. And we're almost on the brink of chaos during the the entire story day. I guess you could say that, but it's a winter festival, so it's traditionally a very dark time when spirits are moving around and violence can be done. But at the same time, there are all of these hints of violence. As you say, there's the darkness, which is sinister, uh, but you've also then got the challenge of prying eyes. You've also got... Uh, Piper's penchant for the mystical, so an owl is killed, but they're a connection to another world. How much of our lives are linked to these uncertainties in life? Well, I guess that's 
a good thing to be thinking about right now and one of the reasons why these stories are so useful because they make our heart race and we race on through books and try not to think about that other impending doom. But Piper is a, an animal behaviourist and so she is interested in the abilities of animals, um, although her pug is, is not exceptionally brave. And the, the uncertainties around the story where I tried to play with the idea of the shifting between the spiritual world and the, and the ordinary world is very much a matter of perspective. And I think that Piper is a realist, whereas the people who are perhaps giving her so much grief are people who are trying to uh, change her sense of reality and frighten her a little bit for their own ends, which could be criminal or not, uh, depending on the reader's perspective. I found when Piper got into the van with an almost complete stranger, and there is a hint there as well uh, with a reference to apps where you can link in with people, it's fraught with potential danger, the way we connect up the decisions we make when we can go off with a stranger without really thinking. Yes, that's true. And I, I think perhaps that is a reality now where people are making those leaps and thinking, is is it safe to proceed? In in her case, she's emotionally driven by the loss of her dog. But, but there's also the sense between she and her. She has a sister in the story as well. And the sister is depicted as someone who is much bolder in her relationships in terms of using an app like Bumble in finding partners. And generally, Piper's not like that. But she makes that split second decision. Sometimes our decisions are fueled by alcohol or other substances. And so we're, we're not quite sure through the story about how uh, sensible she's being. Uh, and, and that's the frightening thing. Will, will she escape unscathed? And because there's a fairly big scene at the beginning with blood and uh, knives and ceremony ritual uh, at the beachside and the dog. You know, I guess there's that trepidation throughout about who's going to survive and, and whether it's worth the risk and why sometimes we still make that choice. Being on the brink, so how much of our lives are actually lived on that brink? Yes, it's interesting right now, isn't it? Because we don't know. This stealthy virus that's um, operating around us, uh, we don't know if it's arrived or not. It's kind of creepy, and I think that plays well into a lot of the stories in the collection, uh, in the anthology. So what is the fascination with suspense from a writer's point of view? I'm a great Stephen King fan, and he, I believe, is the master of suspense. And I suppose I would love to be able to write like Stephen King. Uh, I don't think I'll ever get there. But I think it's it's influence and what I have read and how I want to create something that stirs people up, I suppose. Well, I think I'm probably a big fan of literary fiction, so I will stop and pause for aesthetic moments. Um, I have a great love of beauty, but the thing that keeps people racing through a book is the suspense and the narrative tension, and there are, there's so much narrative tension in all these stories. It drives all the stories forward, but some of the powerful stories for me are the ones where there are dramatic effects or exotic settings or symbolic content, um, wolves and so on. I'll just put this another way then. What are you looking for in the reader? What are you trying to generate then in the reader when you write a piece of suspense? 
In this particular story, I think what I was looking for was a little empathy with the old lady, a bit of empathy with uh, some of the other characters, even Colin, who I won't give the story away either, but even people who do bad things deserve a degree of empathy because you don't always know where it's come from. I guess we all hope that what we want people to do is is to turn the page, keep turning the pages, to to gallop on through your book. And and so that's why we include hooks and and, uh, ambiguities and um, a big, big scene and and then reversals and surprises. So all those things are terribly important and pacing them in a short story is quite a different technique. They're also reality in many ways. We like to think our lives are logical and reasonable, but there are these elements of suspense, these hooks, these turns, these twists that occur in day-to-day life anyway, and we need to be prepared for them. Yes, that's true. So I guess these stories are a comfort in some ways because they show resilience. And it's a good point to end on this notion of resilience in this day and age. I'm going to have to finish the interview there, but I'd like to thank you both. This is the first time I've done a group call on Skype, but The book is called Thrill Me. It's edited by Lynette Washington and it's from Glimmer Press. So Gay and Angela, thank you very much for talking with me today. Thank Thank you for inviting us. Thanks, David. And now it's my turn. Ashik Rom has done something that many of us dream of doing, but we don't do. He's lived and worked in a different country with a different culture and wrote about his time there in his book, Chicken Same Duck Talk. Welcome, Ashek. Um, Hello, it's great to be here. Thank you very much. Ashek, the title, Chicken Same Duck Talk, seems a bit confusing. Can you explain it? Well, it's basically Chinglish. Uh, Yeah, long time no see. It basically translates as, I might as well be a a chicken talking to a duck. So it's an expression about miscommunication. But, uh, you know, the actual expression, ji tong ya jiang, it directly translates as chicken same duck talk. It's a good title because actually you've explained exactly where you were, China. You had friends who said that there was a vacancy at the school they were teaching at and you went for a year, but you stayed nine years. So what ages did you teach? So I was you teaching in universities, the university ages, and so, you know, around 20 to 25. In terms of the part-time jobs, I taught everything from literally kindergarten to businessmen. My main job was at universities. Well, yeah, but quite often those students just wanted to learn English to pass an exam. They didn't really want to learn, so there was plagiarism that came in. And I loved your descriptions of the competitions in public speaking, how quite often they just wrote, learnt something, but you, with a little bit of drama, got them to involve with their body language. You did quite well with that, didn't you? Um, yeah, they were some of my proudest moments, yes. The thing is, like, it's very, very hard to generalise about students. There are people who just want to pass the exam. Yes, the, it's, the country is full of them. But when I was teaching in Nanjing, um, I was teaching in Wuhan first, but then to, in Nanjing, I was teaching postgraduates. 
And in China, the difference between undergraduates and postgraduates is phenomenal. And so, yeah, the teaching in the, the teaching in public speaking competitions, they found out that I was very good at it because of my my acting background. And um, yeah, I uh, yeah, but the my students won prizes left, right, and centre, and I was very well done. very happy with that. But there were problems with teaching. Basically, the universities supplied the accommodation, but it seemed to always not be particularly good. And uh, the administration in universities, they weren't particularly well organised, were they? Oh, well, it's a a lot of cultural differences. Um, I mean, one of the biggest cultural differences that I talk about extensively in the book is um, there's Mienza, which is losing face and gaining face, and um, Guanxi, which basically translates as connections. And how that works in their society, like all levels of their society, is that like it affects the hierarchy of okay, you're you're working in an office, you're you're working in the administration with the administration people, and you're working with someone who generally seems to just to be a pen pusher. But if they've got a lot of connections, then they have social oomph, incredible amount of social oomph that you'll never know about. And so there's there's difficulties teaching, but a lot of it comes from cultural differences. And only when you find someone who can tell you about those, um, someone who understands the Western ways and the Eastern ways and tells you about them, then that person is gold for you because all the other ways they're not going to tell you or you've got to guess everything. That's what we actually read about. You actually explain all of this to us. And you also explain about your enjoyment in learning the language and you give lots of examples of how words are built and how the translations were humorously incorrect. Look, I thought it was fantastic reading about the assortment of animals, and they're all classified as insects. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's interesting. I, yeah, I, I learned a lot of the language, you know, partly out of necessity because my first two and a half years were in Wuhan, and Wuhan has almost no English. But also, it's really <laughs> enjoyable. It's extremely enjoyable. And yes, there's one one part of the character is called a radical, and the radical that means insect covers a huge range of you know, animals like like um, crayfish and snails and frogs. But the one thing you point out is, uh, as a woman, you don't want to have the name of Debbie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sounds it sounds very close to um Daibi. Um, the Chinese were Daibi, and I got various versions of how offensive that is. So, yeah, like some people said it just means go away and some people said it means absolutely screw you, you know. Um, so, yeah, if your name is Debbie, um, leave that name behind. Okay? <laughs> well, you mentioned that your first university position was in Wuhan and, of course, that's been in the press constantly. And we, we get your observations. It, it's not a place that you would actually uh, advise tourists to go to. Uh, well, look, as I think I say in the book, look, in, in retrospect, I'm very, very happy that I went to Wuhan first. So it's kind of, um, it is the deep end. But, yeah, it's, 
I don't want to say really bad things about it, but look, I traveled extensively around China and it is the dirtiest city that I went to by far. And what I mean by that is, well... I think you actually, in the book, you call it the land of the rising phlegm. <laughs> look, I think that might be a bit. Yeah, look. I mean, there's no way of sugarcoating this. I mean, people in China spit. Okay, that's fine. But people in Wuhan, they spit more than, well, anyone else combined. It's um, basically everywhere outside their own house, they are free to expectorate. Um, And that. That makes a very big difference to the, the general, you know, like every single day I would come home and I wouldn't have to have a shower. It's but like you were there for three years and your later years you were working in Nanjing. Why was it easier to be a foreigner in Nanjing rather than Wuhan? Uh, look, Wuhan has basically no foreigners. For, for basically like almost every intent and purpose, Wuhan has no foreigners. Um, Shanghai has tons of them, which means you're kind of you're part of the furniture. In Wuhan, or in any place with where there's almost no foreigners, you stand out like the the proverbial dog's testicles. It's like everyone, your peripheral vision is continually filled with people um, turn, turning their heads to look at you, and they follow you. They actively follow you. Stay. Oh, they stare and stare and stare and stare, and they will call their mates to join. It's like, like, oh, well, that's Wuhan. Nanjing is the, Nanjing simply has more foreigners. In yeah, in Nanjing Normal University, Nanjing University, and a place called John Hopkins, now there's lots of there's a constant influx of foreign students. And um, Nanjing Normal University in particular has a, an international reputation of where to learn Chinese. And so there's just within the, the little CBD of Nanjing, there's simply more foreigners, which means the novelty has worn off, basically. <laughs> you know, you're just another alien. Yeah. Now, of course, you, you were over there as an English teacher, but you wrote it also about being a tourist in China. And, you know, there's things we do know about the Great Wall and the Terracotta Warriors. But you wrote about something I'd never heard of, and I had to look it up, and I was fascinated. The, you, the Tulo Cluster. Yeah, yeah. The... Wow. Incredible About my last four years in Nanjing, I, I got on Wikipedia and I looked up the all the UNESCO heritage listed sites in China, and I tried to see one of them every year before I left. Yeah. So the Tulos, they were the last one. It's a it's an area in southern China in, in Fujian province. So it's yeah the Fujian Tulo area is like this. It's a huge mountain range and it's full of these round buildings, which are basically the Chinese equivalent of medieval castles. They're all built around the same age. You know, if, Google it, the listeners out there, because they're fascinating. And I do like, Ashik Brahm, the way that you led us into explanations with sit down, grasshoppers, and get ready for another lesson in China. <laughs> yeah. Museums. You also visited a lot of Buddhist temples. Some had been desecrated, as you said, but there were grottos with intricately carved Buddhas over a thousand years old, and this new complex 
with live shows enacting Buddha's life and an 88-metre-tall golden Buddha, and it was all built 20 years ago, but it only had two monks. Um, yeah, that was, a, that was a bit of a weird one. It's in a place called Lingshan, which is um, about an hour away from uh, Wuxi in Jiangsu province. So, yeah, it's this huge, it's a, it's a, yeah, a massive golden statue of Buddha. It's it kind of like, a, as I wrote in the book, it's kind of like a Disneyland of Buddhism. It's got like different buildings from all the different um, parts of the history of Buddhism. And it's... um. It is an absolutely incredible place, but yeah, there's absolutely no history in it. It was just, yeah, it was built extremely recently. Do you sort of see that there's a, a religious resurgence coming in China? Oh, that's very, very hard to say because it's like the official political state of China at the moment is, they, it's called communist with Chinese characteristics. That's what China is officially now, because I, I proofread one of the, the province yearbooks. So that, that's what it is officially. But on the street level, it's like China is capitalist. That's what it is at the moment. The vast, vast majority of this, my students were atheists. A small handful were Buddhists. Yeah, no, a little, a surprising amount were Christian. Thanks to the, um, the missionaries who floated around, and yes, I was I taught with a couple of them. There's not much faith in in China at the moment. I think I think they still believe in good luck, and so they go to temples and light all the incense and all the candles and stuff. But um, yeah, I, it's difficult. I'm not sure. That just seems is such intensely capitalistic and materialistic at the moment. It's um, it's really hard to tell, hard to say. Look, you summed it up in the book: a, a historical pride, but spiritual blankness. Yeah, well, that's maybe an opinion. Yes, yeah, so, yeah. There's a there's a few times in the book, and I do like those times in the book where I I, I I'm looking at things from a distance and just sort of like mulling things over and coming to some kind of conclusion. And interestingly, it's um. The, the Chinese people who have read the book, they, they really like those parts because it's a, to them it's normal. You know, I, I'm, I've, I've been able to step outside and, and look at them and look at their culture from a perspective they hadn't thought of before. So, yeah, I, I remember when I went, went to the, one of the, um, uh, the, the temples over there, Hangzhou, I believe that was. And so, yeah, the, the spiritual blankness, like they're, they're, they're proud of this past. They're proud of this stuff, but they don't know what to do with it anymore. Mm. Look, um, you talked about proofreading books, but look, I must say, I, I, I thought the way that you you describe things in in um, in four paragraphs in on one page, we had these descriptions of teaching in a kindergarten, the promise of airfares, the international phenomic alphabet, and the haphazard collection of street food to make gutter oil. And that's just, so we jumped around in thought, and uh, but always very interesting. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, um, I'm... Yeah, I'm very happy you, you read it at obviously quite some length. Yeah, yeah, thank you, thank you. They were originally written as um, emails for my family and friends, and so that, that just, that's the reason why they're so personal and colloquial. 
when I was editing, because you know, the, the, the book was originally three times as big as it is now. So what I was trying to do was just edit out, um, I was just trying to leave all, all the, the interesting parts in. And some of, and resultingly, sometimes it just jumps from concept to concept and idea to idea. Yeah, editing that much was, uh, it was about four years, four years just editing the bloody thing you know it took a long time well you were there for nine and a half years you know um and look there's another bit in the book so when people ask what was it like in china what do you say to them i say read the book <laughs> like like so, here's the book like, so these times of online buying how can readers get your diary and go to ashegbrom.com. So A S H E G B R O M M for Mary dot com. Ashegbrom.com. You can read it, read some of the book from there. Lots and lots and lots of pictures to look at. And um, click click on buy now and make me happy. <laughs> <laughs> so what we have with As Asher uh, Brom's Chicken Same Duck Talk is an entertaining observation of life with the difficulties and delights of an Australian teacher in China. Thank you very much, Ashed. Oh, thank you very, 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 very much. Fantastic. Well, I was talking with Ashed Brom about his book Chicken Same Duck Talk. And I was talking with Angela Segalia and Gay Lynch about the anthology Thrill Me, which was an imprint from Glimmer Press. This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not.